bomb was never used again, partly because everybody sort of realizes that, especially now that various countries all have nuclear weapons, uh, the, what do they call it? There's this chance of mutually assured destruction if a couple of countries start throwing bombs at each other. Yeah, it's basically the last few minutes of the movie War Games where they prove on the screen that the only uh, winning uh, approach to war games is don't play. Because <laughs> when you get into that level of warfare, uh, there are no winners. Because immediately, you know, we shoot a bomb at them, and they shoot back at us, and it goes back and forth until there's nothing left but uh, a uh, scarred little, you know, lifeless planet. Once upon a time, people of a certain age witnessed an historic change in the way humans destroy each other in a war. In 1945, the United States ended World War II by dropping two atomic bombs on Japan. The end of the war ushered in a new form of conflict, the Cold War. This time on the Plutopia podcast, John and Scoop share memories of growing up in the shadow of the bomb. Oh, the bomb. The bomb. Well, you know, there was uh, nuclear fission, and when they realized that they could do nuclear fission, they realized that it would set off a chain reaction, and uh, that that chain reaction could create a rather substantial explosion. Was that nuclear fission or trout fission? I, I never could. No, trout fission was a different kind of fission. Okay. So um, they had a project, the Manhattan Project, and there's a movie uh, in production about there. I guess it's already post-production, past post-production and about to be released called Oppenheimer, about Robert Oppenheimer, who's been called the father of the atomic bomb. He's also the victim of the atomic bomb. They kind of screwed up his career after he thought it was not that great an idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think that that's kind of the subject of the movie. Yeah, there were a lot of people that were uh, thinking that was a great idea until they saw what it did and then had second and third thoughts, actually, because that was a pretty dramatic increase from the firepower that was being used in the various world wars. I think this uh, movie with Killian Murphy as uh, Robert Oppenheimer just kind of follows his life and his career. And I'm sure it includes all of that. It's a film by Christopher Nolan. And if you know Christopher Nolan's work, you know that this is going to be a pretty interesting film. Uh, but the bomb. So we were talking about the bomb. Uh, we had the picture of Little Boy up. Uh, there were two bombs, Little Boy and Fat Man. And uh, these bombs were developed toward the end of World War II. Uh, and the only time nuclear weapons have been used in war, there were two times, and those were both around the same time in Japan by the United States. Uh, the United States dropped atomic bombs, a fat man and little boy. A little boy was dropped on Hiroshima. And three days later, fat man was dropped on Nagasaki. Uh, neither of these bombs had Slim Pickens riding them. Um, but, uh, the, of course, the, the nuclear bombs were pretty terrible. And, you know, they were pretty nervous the first time they ever tested one of these nuclear bombs. There was some question of whether the chain reaction would be contained or whether it would, you know, pretty much destroy the known universe. Um that would make you nervous. It would tend to. That would tend to. You know, there was a time when I was asked actually by a teacher in school if my dad was the one that dropped the atomic bomb because one of the pilots of one of, one of the bombers was named Charles Sweeney. Huh. And when I found that out, I, I immediately went to the library and, what the hell are you talking about? I, I concluded it was not my dad whose name was Charles Sweeney and my name in case I've never said it before, is Charles Sweeney. That's the real, 
I'm under an, uh, an, an alias. I'm kind of like a mob hitman. I have my alias, so people can't find out. Chip really am. I, I I've had so many aliases that uh, I would probably qualify as a mafia hit guy. <laughs> I, it would have been kind of interesting to uh, to be in the vicinity of the Trinity test in New Mexico and see that thing go off. Well, there were a lot of people who were, and it didn't, didn't work out well for them. They had a lot of troops that were said told, oh, we're going to have you watch this thing, get in this uh, uh, trench <laughs> that we're going to dig for you and put your helmet on and your glasses and... Uh, stand by and they were pretty close to the uh, explosion and a lot of them uh, ended up with severe medical problems including various cancers and uh, that was one of those situations where the uh, general staff said oops sorry you know uh John Wayne appeared in a film, and I'm trying to remember the name of the film, but it was shot in that area. It was, uh, maybe I can find this film. Uh, it was shot not far from there, and not long after those tests were conducted. And, of course, famously, John Wayne died of cancer. And I think uh, some people believe that... Uh, he was exposed to some level of, of radiation and that that uh, caused his cancer. I think it might have had something to do with all those cigarettes that he smoked. <laughs> yeah, but Indeed. being a former smoker myself, uh, they did uh, <laughs> have an impact. And I remember even smoking all sorts of those unfiltered cigarettes in various movies and so uh, it, it's kind of six of one and a half dozen of another, just to, which actually got him the big C. There you go. But, it, you know, it, there is some question of how much collateral damage there was from these uh, above-ground nuclear tests. Of course, they did them out in the middle of the desert, so there weren't that many people around. Yeah. Well, if you look at the studies of uh, the wind patterns from the Trinity site across Texas, guess where it just went right over? I'll let you guess, you know, and uh, you've been there, you lived there. Big Spring. And I, I've lost count of the number of people I knew in that town that came up with various kinds of cancers. Well, uh, how were we spared? Uh, it's the luck of the draw, I think, or the genetics. <laughs> I don't know. But, uh, you know, my mom ended up with... Uh, various kinds of cancer. My dad died of uh, liver cancer. And, uh, you know, a lot of the people I, I grew up with had various cancers. And we used to go out and play in that dirt. And that dirt, a lot of it uh, <laughs> may have come from the Trinity bomb site by way of the prevailing winds that go from Oh, Lord. Yeah, dusters. Dusters yeah. probably blew them in. Yep. Well, so so it's kind of interesting to think about this whole uh, bomb thing. I mean, the nuclear age, the nuclear era started there right, right at the end of World War II when those bombs were dropped. And, uh, you know, initially they didn't really uh, seem to realize uh, quite what the danger was from radiation. And... Um, there there was there was some debate about dropping those bombs and there's been ongoing debates about the morality of having dropped those bombs of course there are uh non-nuclear bombs that are pretty bad also uh, the whole morality of war is of course questionable but uh this was a use of nuclear technology that was um troubling and the the bomb was never used again partly because everybody sort of realizes that especially now that various countries all have nuclear weapons uh, the what do they call it there's this chance of 
mutually assured destruction if a couple of countries start throwing bombs at each other. Yeah, it's basically the last few minutes of the movie War Games where they prove on the screen that the only uh, winning uh, approach to war games is don't play. Because <laughs> when you get into that level of warfare, uh, there are no winners because immediately, you know, we shoot a bomb at them and they shoot back at us and it goes back and forth until there's nothing left but uh, a uh, scarred little, you know, lifeless planet. So, you know, people thought of that right away. And I know a guy named Steve Cannon who uh, was made a blog post uh, a couple of days ago about, uh, well, the title of the post is a tactical nuke is just a branding exercise arguably the most toxic one on earth and he starts by considering the question about what if putin uses a tactical nuke uh, as if that would change the situation in ukraine um, and he's saying well it probably wouldn't shift the military balance uh, it would shift the political the the political uh thinking of the world against putin's interests really um threatening is one thing actually using the bomb is another um and you can do in in a war like that or a battle like that you can do pretty much the same thing with uh conventional weapons that you could do with a tactical nuke so the whole thing, what what this discussion of nuclear weapons is about, especially as Putin kind of uh, subtly implies that he might use a nuclear weapon, that's really, as he says, a branding exercise. It's basically uh, uh, a way to incite fear, you know, and to to give people concern that he would actually go through with this, but it's very unlikely that he would. It would totally backfire if he did. Well, you know, it might be unlikely, but so far in his handling of the Ukraine war, he doesn't seem to have any limits on what he's willing to do to uh, reach his goal. If, the, if something gets in the way of his... Uh, plans he tends to just take the most extreme way he can possibly think of and uh you know the end result of course is you know a lot of people getting killed maimed and you know a lot of places destroyed but i think if if he was going to use a new he would have used it by now yeah but you know the one thing that uh, always troubled me about the whole uh, nuclear scare it was uh this thing. Oh, yeah. And uh, I think we both went through those drills, the duck and cover, crawl under your desk because it... I felt so much safer under my desk. That that, with, flamm with, that flammable wooden top always made me feel really, really uh, secure and safe. I think uh, I probably got some chewing gum in my hair while I was down there. Yeah, but that was a common theme throughout, uh, you know, my early years was... Someone was always reminding you that they were, there were several defense uh, drills. There were duck and cover drills at school. You couldn't go uh, onto the evening news without there being some story <laughs> about something horrendous. So it was a pretty stressful time to just be around. <laughs> but we all knew that if there was... Uh, any kind of nuclear exchange, we were screwed. Oh, yeah. Well, we, particularly where we grew up, we grew up next to an Air Force base that had a fighter squadron there. And they were one of the first ones scrambled during the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. And guess who would be on the receiving end of those Cu those Cuban-Russian missiles if uh, they actually had to use them? You know, it would be us. So there'd be no... Uh, there would be no going to a shelter. In fact, there I don't know if you remember, there was a bomb shelter in our hometown, Big Spring, Texas, in front of uh, the main fire station. 
Well, my uncle had a bomb shelter in his backyard. Yeah, and uh, basically, uh, you know, they were sold as bomb shelters, but they were basically tornado shelters. They were the same ones you could get <laughs> to, to dodge the tornadoes because we actually went and uh, tried to get the uh, local fire department to let the Boy Scouts go in and live in it and show how it worked, and they kind of took us aside and said, you wouldn't be able to live in this thing. This is just for demonstration purposes. <laughs> you would not live in this thing for very long. And we're like, oh, well, that's scary. <laughs> so so we have no place to seek shelter. And for an atomic bomb, there really is no shelter. You remember panic in year zero? I remember that. I, I, I don't remember what I had for breakfast, actually. <laughs> so, <laughs> re refresh me. Oh well, it was a pretty interesting movie. It was uh, it it was about nuclear holocaust, or uh, it was actually a post nuclear film. You know, there were there were a lot of those. Mm -hmm. um, so it was uh, just kind of a black and white film. Uh, Ray Milland was the star of the film. I'm sure you remember Ray Milland. Mm -hmm. Uh, the man with X-ray eyes. Uh, so Ray Milan acted in the movie and was also the director of the movie. And uh, it had a score by Les Baxter, one of our favorites. We played him on our uh, music show. Um, and it also had, among other things, Frankie Avalon as his son in the movie. And it's about a couple and their kids who are on their way to a camping trip in Sierra Nevada wilderness. And uh, uh, along the way, they they notice there's this bright light and they kind of look, look and see that there's a mushroom cloud over Los Angeles. And uh, they try to head back, but everybody's panicking and they can't go back. And the whole thing from there is about uh, their like survival trajectory after after the the bomb has fallen you know well the one that really scared the living crap out of me was on the beach and that was uh not one of those happy ending films where everybody uh, sh shows up alive and it's okay it's all going to get better it was one, it's one of those end of the world things where it ends with you're on the beach and there is no one left and it's dealing with people who are on a nuclear submarine. Uh, basically, uh, centers around uh, Australia, if I remember correctly. And it was well done. And it was, I, I didn't sleep for <laughs> quite a few nights after seeing that film because it was, you know, pretty dire impact on an impressionable young mind. Well, it was a well done movie. It was directed by Stanley Kramer. Oh, yeah, absolutely well done. And it was based on a fairly popular novel about what happened. It had Gregory Peck in it mm -hmm. and Ava Gardner. Um, I remember seeing that movie. I, you know, I, I didn't take these movies completely seriously. Maybe I should have. Um, and I'm sure you remember the Cuban Missile Crisis. Oh, do I ever? So when the Cuban Missile Crisis uh was kind of at its hottest. Uh, I recall being in the, my junior high science class and uh, the teacher of that class, a woman named Ms. Brokaw, had uh, a husband who was a, an Air Force pilot. Of course, we had an Air Force base in Big Spring, uh, as you well know. And uh, her husband uh, and all, actually all the pilots at Webb Air Force Base were being scrambled and, and sent to Florida. And she was terrified. And I was pretty glib about it. I just didn't buy it. I didn't believe that that there would, you know, ultimately be a nuclear war out of that thing. And uh I was right, but I was also stupid. You know, I was kind of being, of course, I was just a kid, but I was kind of, I guess, optimistic. I always believed that they wouldn't really go through with it. Yeah, it was, uh, it, it came pretty close, though. I mean, that was, uh, you know, brinksmanship uh, at its best and worst. 
of having the Russian ships who were that were carrying the uh, ballistic missiles to Cuba. They already had installed some, and this was a new shipment. And uh, the U.S. had uh, established a blockade, and these uh, these ships loaded with missiles were saying they're not going to turn back and. President Kennedy would say, well, if you, if you don't, we'll sink your ships. And of course, that would be an act of war. And there's no way anybody comes out better after something like that. And that was really frightening. I remember my, uh, my older sister's husband was an airman at the Air Force Base. And they put him out of, on patrol. And you know, just they were expecting you know, Cubans to be coming into Big Spring. So they had them out with all automatic weapons surrounding the air base. And uh, we thought that was kind of weird. It's like, that, that's pretty serious when you got, suddenly you've got a bunch of people out there with serious weaponry looking outward and thinking somebody's coming into the air base. Of course, you know, that's just the natural way they respond to that kind of situation. But to a kid, it's pretty scary. You remember how it was resolved? Yeah, basically just by negotiations with Khrushchev and Kennedy. Yeah, but we agreed to take some missiles down, and they agreed to pull their missiles out of Cuba. Yeah, they were dismantled we, the Jupiter uh, missiles, and they we were, were taking missiles out of Turkey and Italy in exchange. Yeah, and the Russians also had their uh, illusion. 28 light bombers that were stationed in Cuba. That was another one of the uh, big things that, uh, you know, caused a lot of uproar because it was one thing to have missiles, but having, you know, bombers 90 miles off the coast of the United States was really frightening to not just, you know, general, the general population, but, you know, to, to the military folks because, you know, that's a serious threat. You don't have much warning when you're only 90 miles away. I think that Kennedy and Khrushchev both knew that a nuclear war was would be devastating to the whole planet. Yeah. And that neither one of them, you know, had the will to to take it that far. But others were not sure of that and certainly I mean we grew up in an era of profound anxiety about about this possibility of of a major war breaking out. Mm. Um, and in fact, you know, I mean, it seems really pretty bad right now. There's a lot of tension. There is that whole huge war happening in the Ukraine now. Um, but I don't think people are feeling the same level of anxiety that we felt back then. Mm. Or are they? Cool. It's hard to say. But, you know, one thing that really caused a lot of this anxiety was the whole uh, anti-communist uh, movement in uh, in the West in the Western nations everyone was afraid of the communists the communists were afraid of us but uh, anytime uh, something dangerous happened you know they were, they were always going to try and uh, blame it on the commies you know it, it's a communist plot. And there was a lot of that uh, in the, you know, post-war period, you know, late 40s, especially into the uh, 1950s. That was the real, you know, serious uh, anti-communist um, campaigns, you know, mainly by, you know, people like Senator McCarthy and, uh, you know, the the very conservative Republicans. So they, they, had, <laughs> they had their own Tea Party-style folks uh, back then. Did you know any communists? Not then, but I did later. I found <laughs> fairly, uh, fairly uh, harmless folks. They just, uh, you know, like to read uh, communist party newspapers and talk communism and uh, carry around a little picture of Lenin or Marx, and that was about the extent of it. They never. Yeah, they didn't seem did very threatening, really. did they? Yeah, I, I didn't catch them, you know, trying to you know, smuggle in uh, atomic bombs. or <laughs> it, it was just a reason for people to other, you know, just all fear of the other. You know, if you're the other, then you're considered a threat. 
I'm trying to figure out. Oh, I I should say it. It is suddenly difficult to figure out where people can comment on this uh, live stream of ours. Yeah. I'm trying to find that. I want to make sure that if anybody's making any comments, that we know about them. But you know, one thing that happened as a result of all of this. Uh, n nuclear holocaust fear and uh, the political posturing on all sides is the rise of the anti-war campaigns. Uh, the campaign for nuclear disarmament in uh, the UK was one of the early ones, and that was chaired by Bertrand Russell. And they had a lot of you know serious intellectuals who, and, you know, they were the ones that came up with the symbol that we now know as the peace symbol. It's actually called the CND symbol or Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. Oh. It was designed by Gerald Haltom in 1958, and it's now pretty much a universal peace symbol. And there was a lot of that, and it, it ended up over here, and it that really caused a lot of consternation among the anti-communists. You know, immediately if someone was opposed to war, then they are obviously communist. That was the uh, general uh, way of uh, diagnosing what's going on is, uh, they're against the war, so they're a bunch of commies, so we need to uh, round them up. And there was a lot of rounding up that happened. <laughs> there were, uh, I mean, I was associated with uh, radical movements back then. And, you mm -hmm. know, I read radical publications like Rampart's, um, but I, you know, I didn't really know people who were advocating for out-and-out -out communism. Uh, with some exceptions, there were a couple of guys at the University of Texas that I think were probably, uh, probably interested in in uh, smashing the state and bringing in a communist regime. Actually, the the activists at the time, some of the, to some extent, they were similar to the activists that you see today on the right, except they were on the left. But they were talking about, you know, bringing down the government and uh, um, question authority, all that stuff. I mean, I was just thinking not long ago about those question authority bumper stickers. I had one on my car and that's kind of what you're hearing from the right now is you should question everything and you shouldn't believe what the mainstream media is telling you and, and uh, all of that stuff. And it's like, wow, where have I heard this before? Well, you know, the people that engineered that all of that uh, right wing extremist uh, posturing uh, seem to have studied uh, the old new left of the uh, late 60s and 70s. And, uh, yeah, I could see what you're talking about, that they, they, they kind of mirrored it, uh, you know, on the right from the left. But, you know, I, They're drawing on a similar playbook, right? Yeah. And, I, and I, I lived in Berkeley for quite a while, and I was face-to-face -face with a lot of these people. I got to meet these people. And most of them were, you know, they really weren't, I mean, they were parroting the usual uh, phrases, you know, smash the state. But then no, n n most of the people that I met really didn't want to smash the state. They just wanted to people, uh, uh, the uh, extremist on the uh, conservative right, to just leave them alone because there were, you know, a lot of stuff. If you were a hippie or a beatnik or a uh, political activist on, on the left, you were a target, and you were targeted by some you know, really nasty folk, including the local law enforcement. And that that was that was true in the Bay Area. Bay Area was not all of a, not always you know, all, you know, groovy and peaceful, and we love everybody. And there were some serious uh, anti-communist. Uh, groups out there that yeah, really wanted to go out and beat up hippies. And the same was you know, true with a lot of the law enforcement there. They were very forceful when they were, you know, called out to, uh, to um, keep the peace, so to speak. 
at a uh, anti-war demonstration. I was at a, minute, uh, a number of them, and it got pretty nasty, you know, when people are, you know, singing Give Peace a Chance, and they're being responded with, uh, you know, billy clubs and tear gas, and uh, for no obvious reason. Yeah, I guess one difference now from then is that the police are not necessarily um, as likely to be, to have their hearts in, like, taking down the protesters because you find that many of the police are sympathetic to the right-wing cause uh, for whatever reason. I mean, I, I don't, in my mind, I don't think that because you're a, uh, a member of a police force, that, sh- that means you're automatically going to be sympathetic with the right wing. But they do seem to have a lot of police who are on board with them. Yeah, and that was, that, that's not unusual, especially you know, in the Deep South. That's fairly common. And the, uh, the right-wing you know, militias and uh, ultra-conservative organizations actually make an effort to infiltrate, if you will, the, uh, these law enforcement agencies. You know, that's a good source for you know, getting power and uh, probably for, for getting weapons as well. And that's uh, been uncovered a number of times in various uh, law enforcement agencies, even here in Texas, even here in Central Texas. You know, people that were involved with uh, the January 6th insurrection, those folks were, uh, some of those were law enforcement people that were on their vacations. What a what a way to spend your vacation. Oh, yeah, that just, that's just gangs of fun. Yeah, I don't think I would want to do that. Oh, look at that. Well, I, you know, in my advanced age, I realized that, so much of what people do politically is really just about trying to take power, right? Power and money. So much is about power and money. And I believe that what most ordinary people who are not after uh, an excessive amount of either one power or money, (laughs) what they really basically want is to feel safe, Mm -hmm. to be able to raise their families, you know, uh, with relative safety to know that they've got a job to go to or to know that they, you know, can put food on the table, can have a roof over their head. And really, they would be perfectly content to share power with others who feel the same way. And I think the majority of people are like that. And then you have people who are one way or another, politically ambitious. And some of them uh, are interested in public service. You know, I've known a lot of people who really wanted to just do a service. They were, to the extent that they were seeking power, they were seeking power in order to do good. But then there's other people who want to seek power because of their own interests, self-serving, you know, Donald Trump being like the prime example of that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of that. <laughs> and it's all very confused now. And 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 it's made worse by uh, the media and by social media and certainly by political actors who are driving division and creating um, uh, creating emotional responses in people that might not otherwise be there. And, you know, you'll have people that, whereas, you know, you talk to them and it's just fine unless politics comes up and then suddenly there's this, you know, yeah, the division. Whole, the whole thing of uh, politics, it used to be uh, something that was covered, you know, fairly uh, normally, if you will, on in the media back when the media was only like you know three networks and you know a bunch of newspapers and they were fa- fairly conservative but they were also not really into being extreme in either direction because that kind of impacts their ability to sell newspapers and sell advertising 
And with the expansion of mass media, with the, you know the the birth of cable TV and, and expanding of networks, and then social media, the internet comes along, and suddenly anybody can be a media darling. And we see what people like Fox News can do to the political discourse. You know, they can attack anyone and get away with it. Where there was a time where that was considered an un-American thing to do to go out and do character assassination based on very loose or made-up facts, and generally they were called to question on that. But now no one does on either the left or the right or the center. People just kind of throw shit out and see what sticks and hope it. Yeah, it's accepted it form of discourse. Yeah, and it's just there. It really is no uh, normal discourse anymore. It, it, it's 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 all got to be extreme if it wants to be noticed. I want to be a media darling. Well, darling, you be a media. Head <laughs> <Play it> on. <laughs> so I was watching um, a prophetic film today. I was watching. Uh, well, in some ways, um, I was watching Doctor Strange Love. Or how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. Uh, and uh, when I say it was prophetic, there, there there was one character in there, uh, General Jack D. Ripper, who seemed quite a bit like some of these right-wing guys that you see today. His head was all full of crazy about preserving his essence, his precious bodily fluids. Yeah, it was, yeah and that actually caught on and there are still people here in central Texas who are really upset because they're putting fluoride in the water to kind of cut down on all the toothless uh, morons that you see around. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, Jack D. Ripper saw fluoride as a communist plot. Oh, it to, was. To and, poison and, and, Americans. And it still is. I actually have found people who are still out there thinking they should go out and bomb a water supply company because they're putting fluoride in the water. It's, it's like they uh, took uh, uh, Dr. Strangelove as a, a a real documentary. Article <laughs> of faith, yeah. They're following directions from a good old General Ripper. Great. I mean, it really is a absurd film and and it highlights the absurdity of our situ post nuclear situation and uh as i think most people who are watching this have are, are listening to us have probably seen the the film but um it just brings home every time I watch it how crazy it is to even have these fucking bombs, mm -hmm. you know. And and the idea of the doomsday machine is, I mean, I could see that actually happening. I could see that there could actually be a doomsday machine. Well, the, one of the great characters in that movie was the uh, Peter Sellers character. The British officer who was assigned to the uh, that Air Force base. One of his three characters. Yeah. And just trying to be a normal, sane person in the midst of really crazy people who are out of control. And uh, it was just uh, pretty indicative of the, the way uh, the U.S. government and the British government were. The Brits were more of, you know, I mean, you know, they were warlike and they were... Uh, <laughs> Pretty conservative, but they weren't nearly as crazy as the Americans when it came to the uh, the arms race and uh, nuclear warfare. And it, it, he was kind of, you know, playing that part of trying to be the reasonable person to, who wants to stop the apocalypse. Well, he and he played as also the reasonable per person who wanted to stop the apocalypse in his role as president. Mm -hmm. uh, but in his role as Dr. Strangelove. That was one of the best. <laughs> and I was watching that. I never noticed this before, but as he's chewing the scenery, playing Dr. Strangelove, doing that bit at the end where he loses control of his arm. Yeah. And so it, there's a British actor named Peter Bull who played the Russian, uh, the Russian uh, uh, ambassador. Yeah, I believe he was and, uh, an ambassador. 
And he was standing behind Peter Sellers while he did this stuff. And I noticed a couple of times that he was cracking up. I'm surprised that that got left in. But he he just couldn't keep it together. But then, you know, Peter Sellers catches him uh, photographing the, uh, was it Peter Sellers or uh, the other? Well, there was a lot of Peter Sellers in this movie. So it could have been, any character could have been Peter Sellers, except for George C. Scott. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he was, you know, the Russian was caught, uh, you know, taking pictures, I believe, in the war room, and they start fighting. And there's a great quote of, we, "We'll have no fighting in the war room." And it's like, yeah, okie dokie. <laughs> you can't fight in here. This is the war room. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know that uh, that movie uh, just worked on so many levels. Of course, there was the you know. <laughs> The climax with Slim Pickens riding the the atomic bomb uh, out of waving his cowboy hat with a big yeehaw, all the Texans in the movie theaters would yeehaw until they realized what this was all about. And they're oh, that's right, it's the end of the world. And what's great is the uh, song, the ending song. You know, we'll meet again. And don't know where, don't know when. And the birds did a great version of that that pretty much captured the feeling of that. Theirs was a little more psychedelic, but uh, I always loved that song. Oh, that's interesting. They did do that song. You know, yeah. an interesting thing, the birds have another Stanley Kubrick connection. Um, do you recall that the the birds recorded a song called Space Odyssey that was on the Notorious Bird Brothers album? Oh. And uh, it was... It was based on uh, early discussion about um, about 2001. Uh, when 2001 was first announced, uh, I recall reading about it. And at the time, what eventually became the kind of big black slab mm-hmm. was uh, it was going to be a pyramid. So the first things that you heard about 2001 was about how they discovered this pyramid on the moon. But eventually the pyramid was not as practical to do. And and when they finally had to actually sit down and design the thing, they came up with this big black thing instead. But yeah, the bird want... song talks about the pyramid, finding a pyramid. Yeah, they didn't want to piss off the Egyptians, so uh, they had to lose the pyramid. I There was actually... I, I read a book about the making of 2001 and there was an explanation, which I now can't recall of the, of the problem of, of using a pyramid in that sequence and how they ultimately decided that it wasn't going to work and that they had to do this other thing. Uh, But it wasn't a bomb. (laughs) There weren't any bombs in 2001. No, it was uh, more uh, more frightening actually when you uh, you know, got into it. You know, the, uh, it w- well, it was it was frightening and yet hopeful. Yeah, it just kind of depends on how how you took that whole space child thing at the end. Just, well, it if you read the book, what was supposedly happening there while the space child was hovering above the Earth was that bombs, nuclear bombs, were going off on the Earth. Ah. That's my recollection. Uh, that's not the way uh, Kubrick portrayed it. And in fact, I think that was lost in two. Th- like they came back with 2010, and they didn't really get back to that. But I, I'm pretty sure I recall that at the end of the actual book version of it, Arthur C. Clarke's book, mm-hmm. um, there were bombs blowing. Yeah, well, Ar- Arthur C. Clarke, the the stuff he wrote was generally. Uh, not softened up for <laughs> to make you feel good. It was more of a, you know, a, a, an attempt at portraying how it, it could possibly really be. Yeah, know, it's really good for, you know, coming up with these uh, sci- these sci-fi novels that actually had an impact, and you know, a lot of it came came true in the in the, uh, today's world. Yeah, yeah, some of it definitely did. He. He was a pretty good predictor as a science fiction writer. Science fiction usually doesn't do a very good job of predicting the future, mm. but uh, a few things have 
there uh, one of the his famous predictions was of, of space satellites mm-hmm. um and i think another thing this wasn't arthur c clark but people like to talk about how some of our handheld devices now are, are sort of like the devices they had on star trek yeah they're, they're actually are probably better <laughs> they don't have to flip out anymore but we don't have a transporter yet eh, i'm working on my own transporter there <laughs> do you think they had insects in space do you think there were i'm thinking about so the first transporter i ever saw was in the fly you mm-hmm. remember the fly well yes. that was a transporter that was uh sort of like the the uh the first version of the Star Trek transporter, right? So they yeah. were already working on it back in the 50s. And uh, in the fly, a fly got into the transporter with the human and their atoms got scrambled and the human came through with the head of a fly and the fly came through with the human head. Yeah, that was always uh, kind of a uh, iffy thing, the whole transporter concept, because most all the ones that were in the various sci-fi movies and novels, it was basically they were taking you apart at the atomic level and shooting those atoms off somewhere else and reconfiguring and rebuilding your body and your soul and whatever. It's like, that's uh, a bit extreme. Well, that... That kind of gets to my issue with science fiction that I think I've mis- mentioned on the show before, which is that it really gets into our heads and we've had it. We've had science fiction as sort of our a, a fr- common framework for so long. And we've been exposed to so many um, concepts in science fiction that have sort of like caught on as plot devices and have persisted. Like uh, the one I usually mention is time travel. I don't believe for a minute that time travel is is possible in the sense that they show time travel in science fiction stories, but it works pretty well as a plot device, right? Mm-hmm. But what you have is that it's been such a common plot device for so long that people sort of get it into their heads that, yeah, yeah, time travel, time travel could happen. I mean, space travel as it's, as it's been depicted on Star Trek is probably never going to happen because humans don't do well in space. Yeah, in fact, I saw something just today about how space is really, really hard on the human body. And, and uh, you know, there's a whole question about whether we could actually be tooling around space in the Starship Enterprise, yeah. whether there would ever be a, a practical application like that. Yeah, people on the space station experience really extreme things like you know extreme bone loss and yeah. have trouble when they return to Earth. I mean, they really have to do some rehab because they their body isn't working like it did up in space. And uh, one thing that uh, Asimov came up with that uh, is really uh, I think uh, come to mind given the state of AI in, uh, in, in, in theory and in practice, you know, that's a big dip. A lot of people are s- scared by artificial intelligence. Asimov came up with the three laws of robotics, which kind of is a similar field about, you know, a robot may not injure a human being or through an action allow a human being to come to harm and so on. And, there are people who are saying that w- that we really need to enact that. You know, mainly people who've seen a lot of you know, Matrix movies. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I've been hearing a lot about AI recently, and I've had a few conversations with Chat GPT, which is uh, an AI. Um, what would you call it? It's it, it, it's an AI device. You know, it's an application. And it's really, I mean, it's, you know, it's a piece of code that uh, you can talk to, right? Mm-hmm. So you can, uh, you get an account on uh, this uh, system called OpenAI. Mm-hmm. 
and you can log into your account and you can do there's a couple of things they have there one is called doll e which allows you to create it's an ai that creates images based on yeah i fiddled around with that some and i i haven't tried the other one but uh it just uh it's scary in some ways you know to people who are creative people to see that uh, (laughs) they may be uh uh Put on the same uh, trash heap as uh, people who used to r- run machine tools in uh, in factories. Yeah, now that's being done by robots, or people who drove <laughs> who drive taxis and automobiles. They're they're being replaced by Elon Musk and his driverless cars, which is. Another scary thing, there is no such thing as a driverless car, but they call it that, and it's caused a lot of serious accidents. So all of this technology is great when it works, but uh, it, you know, it also you have to kind of keep an eye on it because it can be really scary when it fails to work right. I've never been in a driverless car, but I've been in a car with a mindless driver oh i've had plenty of those in fact i've I've been that driver a few times and i I stopped doing that i asked the chat gpt what it thought plutopia might be um just a minute ago while you were talking Mm -hmm. based on the name plutopia might be a place or concept associated with the planet pluto or the concept of wealth and abundance pluto being the roman god of wealth Without more context, it's difficult to say for certain what Plutopia might refer to. Well, he got it. I mean, the chat, chatter got it right there. Uh, you know, we are a place of wealth, not necessarily monetary wealth, but not <laughs> a, wealth at all. Of, a wealth of ideas and bullshit, perhaps. <laughs> we are quite wealthy. I'm talking to Chat GPT. I said, Plutopia might be a portmanteau of pluralist utopias. Yes, that is a possibility. Plutopia is a portmanteau of pluralist utopias would suggest a concept of multiple utopias existing simultaneously or in parallel, each with its own unique characteristics and ideals. He gets it. This term may be used to describe a theoretical society where different individuals or groups have their own unique visions of an ideal society which coexist harmoniously. Hot dog. Well, I have to give that one an A plus. So uh, yeah, <laughs> no, no shit. So there you go. I'm, I'm gonna copy that one and save it <laughs> for posterity. Put that up on our marquee and blame the robot. <laughs> well, it's not a robot. Wow, everything's it's, a robot. It's an artificial <laughs> intelligence. It's actually. Uh, uh, what would you call it? A machine learning system. I mean, you know, basically what they do with one of these things is they feed a, a bunch of uh, uh, data into a system, tons and tons of data. And um, the system manages to uh, respond to queries in a way, it's structured to respond to queries in a way that seems like uh, it, it seems conversational. It seems like you're talking to a human, though you really aren't. I wonder if uh, any of these have passed the Turing test. Has anyone passed the Turing test lately? Uh, I haven't taken the Turing test myself. <laughs> I don't think I've passed. You, you, no, mean, I, you can't convince me that you're a human? Uh, I, I see that. <laughs> I think I did once hear that that something some 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 AI had passed the Turing test, but I'm really not clear about that. And uh, I'm not sure that the Turing test is the right test anyway. Well, I think it'd be great to do a create an uh, an AI um, of some sort, but the, the, and you feed it tons of data, but it's all really strange data like all the issues of Mad Magazine and all the scripts for really obscure, strange, demented movies and see what that kind of AI comes up with might be, it might be funny, it might be frightening. 
Well, I'm reading a book right now that features a couple of AIs, actually. And uh, the book is by J.D. Lasica. It's called Firefall. And uh, I'm hoping that J.D. will join us and talk about the book here. But this is a book about uh, uh, an AI that's been launched into space uh, for malicious, with malicious intent. And uh, there's another AI in this uh, book who that's like an assistant to somebody who can like call up this assistant and this assistant is very conversational, very like human conversational, probably more so than an AI would really be. And, you know, I've been thinking I've been thinking about the speculation that you could create an AI that could manifest itself as kind of a hologram, you know, kind of like uh, something that you could see if you put special glasses on, uh, which is the case in this particular book. Um, I really don't know. I I'm very skeptical about an AI being much like a human. They're just not going to be like a human. But the the project is to try to make them seem as much like a human as possible so that you will have like some level of comfort with them because their responses are familiar kind of responses. Yeah, people have made things that uh, resemble humans. There's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, human-looking uh, robots, it's especially the Japanese have been really good at that. And... Um, They've even created sex robots, which uh, have been around for a while. They were pretty basic to begin with, and apparently they've developed them into fairly um, realistic imitations of uh, <laughs> of the of sexual humans. But I I really can't see how it would. Be. It's not really making them human. It's like set dressing or uh, special effects that are made to resemble a human. You, you can resemble a human, but I, I don't see how there's going to be any AI that's going to be really like a human. Well, if you're building a, a humanoid sort of device for sex, you'd want it to be more human-like, but really... In creating a functional robot, it really doesn't make much sense to create a robot with legs and arms and a head, you know? Uh, that's certainly not necessary for the robot to be functional. Yeah, if you were creating a, a, a realistic human sex robot, it would be one that would may or may not have sex with you. It may think, yeah, you're ugly, go away. <laughs> oh, now that's human. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a headache. Go away. So basically, uh, they need to build re rejection into it <laughs> for it to be real. If you're, yeah, or it could be, uh, you know, if it's a male uh, sex robot, it could uh, disappear and <laughs> go out for a pack of cigarettes and never come back. Uh, yeah, it's realism. You know, realistically, we're. Toward the end of the show, we're down to the last three minutes, and we talked quite a bit about bombs. Uh, there was one other thing I was going to mention a while ago when we were talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis, mm -hmm. and I'm wondering if you've seen it. There was a film called Matinee. Did you see Matinee? No, I don't think so. Uh, Matinee was a film made in 1993. I think it was directed by Joe Dante, as I recall. Yeah, Joe Dante. Uh, and it had John Goodman in it. And uh, do you remember uh, a film director named William Castle? Yes, yes. Okay, so William Castle uh, liked to make movies with gimmicks. So, for instance, The House on Haunted Hill had a skeleton that would kind of float out over the audience at a strategic point in the movie or his movie called the tingler had some of the seats rigged with little electric buzzers that would go off when the tingler was active that I sort of thing. both of those 
<laughs> and this movie is it was inspired by William Castle. It's mm-hmm. John Goodman plays that kind of director. Um but it takes place during the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, at a town in in Florida, Key West, Florida, um, where the guy shows up to screen one of his films as the Cuban Missile Crisis is happening. So the Cuban Missile Crisis is sort of the background for this film. It's really pretty interesting. Well, it's kind of a fun movie to watch. That'd be kind of a buzzkill for your premiere there. <laughs> Got- oh, listen. <laughs> I mean, that's the movie right there. Sounds realistic to me. Well, John, this has been a lot of fun. All right. We'll see ya. You can follow the Plutopia News Network at plutopia.io. On Facebook, go to at Plutopia News. On Twitter, it's at Plutopia. With John Lepkowski, I'm Scoop Sweeney. This is the Plutopia News Network. 20 minutes into the future.